The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We have the privilege of, privilege of turning to God's Word on a topic that has engulfed our society. We're going to begin a two-part series, so this week and next week, on the trans, our transgender moment. Today is part one. You know, culturally, we have now entered into a time when the most extreme views about manhood and womanhood, even our very human nature, have been, are being touted and accepted as mainstream. The topic of gender is the hottest of hot topic buttons today in our current cultural setting. And it's been this way for the last, uh, probably about 10 years, but spiking to unheard of heights in the last two to three years. Legally, as an example, the Equality Act, some of you probably are aware of this, not most of you. The Equality Act, recently passed by the House of Representatives and now sitting in the Senate, would amend the Civil Rights Act to include gender identity as a basis for non-discrimination. In other words, the law would make it so that you cannot be discriminated against on the basis of your claimed gender identity. And the reason this is significant is because prior to that, the law said that you could not be discriminated against based on biological sex. Now, it's, this new law would say that it's your gender identity rather than biological sex that is the basis for any non-discrimination. Previously, you couldn't discriminate against a person for various reasons, but particularly because or whether or not they were male or female. And that was based on their biological sex. If passed, the Equality Act would allow for the individual person to determine how they are perceived according to their own gender identity, which may be different than their biological sex. And the most obvious and concerning application of this law would be with regard to biological men competing in women's sports and being able to use women's bathrooms. But any attempt, prior attempt, to fold gender identity into law, what you have to have is a culture that has been infused and have the, the stage set where, where the, the, the culture is infused with certain ideas and the stage is set to where this idea of gender identity, non-discrimination, not only seems viable in terms of legislation, but necessary in a just and equitable nation. And here's the logic. If it is truly the case that a person may have a gender identity that does not match their biological sex and they are really a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa, then to discriminate against such a person is inherently unjust and a rejection of their very humanity, their very personhood. That's the logic. But the, uh, and so justice, therefore, requires law protection against such discrimination, like we would also require law protection against any kind of discrimination, say, against racial discrimination. But this logic only makes sense if the culture has already been infused with the idea that gender identity is, in fact, distinct from one's biological sex, and that male and female, in terms of gender, is something that is fluid rather than a fixed reality. So public policy is always downstream from culture. 
And what you find is our culture has steadily been infused with this idea that gender identity is paramount and gender is something that is detached from biological sex and it's something that is fluid or on a spectrum. Well, what are some features, what are some things in the culture that have caused this infusion of this kind of thinking that now makes it appear that the Equality Act is something that is required in a nation like ours? that touts itself as a just and equitable nation. What, if, what are some things that have happened? Well, in his book, When Harry Became Sally, by Ryan T. Anderson, it's no longer on Amazon, you can't get it anymore. Uh, Amazon pulled it. It's actually quite an excellent book in terms of its study and its data and its putting together these various cultural pieces and then giving a very nuanced look at this issue of transgenderism as we understand it here in our current culture. Nevertheless, it's been pulled off of Amazon, but he in his, in his, Brian T. Anderson in his book, he provides ex recent examples of how popular culture is pushing towards the idea of normalizing the, uh, the idea that gender is based on personal choice, and just a few examples, some of which you probably already are aware of. For example, in 2011, the movie Becoming Chaz, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and on the Oprah Winfrey Network, was a movie that told the story, the true story of Chastity Bono, the daughter of Sonny and Sherbona, who transitioned from a woman to a man when she was 40. And then in 2013, a popular Netflix show featured a transgender actor who played the role as a transgender prisoner and became the first person who openly identifies as transgender to appear on the cover of Time magazine. That was 2013. In 2014, Amazon Studios produced a show about a father transitioning to becoming a mother, and the lead actor and the director for that show won Emmys in 2016. In 2015, the magazine Vanity Fair featured a cover story, uh, the cover story Call Me Caitlin, that told the story of Bruce Jenner, a former gold medal decathlete who transitioned from a man to a woman. A reality show on cable television shortly after that was about a boy who identified as a girl who has since made a complete surgical transition from being, a tr uh, uh, now being a transgender woman, formerly a uh, boy. In 2017, National Geographic released an issue on, quote, gen the gender revolution. The cover to the subscriber feature, which was different than the cover to the feature that you would buy in the stores, this subscriber issue, for the first time, included a boy, Avery Jackson, who now identifies as a girl. That's the first time that National Geographic had done such a thing on their cover. And most recently, World Magazine, which is just an excellent news, Christian news resource that I encourage you to check out. Most recently, World Magazine published a story on a Denver-based uh, Denver startup called Plume. I wonder if you've heard of this. They created a smartphone app that's now available in 38 states that, quote, allows people 18 and older to get prescriptions for cross-sex hormones and letters of medical recommendation for sex change surgeries without physically meeting with a doctor. Plume advertises this app that users can simply download onto their smartphones and a medical questionnaire you fill out takes about half an hour. And for $99 a month, members get, quote, gender-affirming care, including digital video appointment with a trans-specialist medical provider, ordering and analysis of lab work, letters supporting name and sex changes on official documents. The company also offers a one-time letter of medical su support for sex change surgeries for $150. So that is quick and easy access on a smartphone. So the question is, is how do Christians respond to this kind of cultural moment? That is the question before us today and next week. 
Should Christians simply ignore what's happening and hunker down in our churches and our private devotional life and stay out of the cultural fray? Is that the, uh, the approach? Well, biblically speaking, I would argue that this is a non-option based on a, a load of texts, but one in particular, 1 Corinthians uh, 13.6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A Christian worldview, a Christian worldview, namely the truth about who God is and who we are as created in his image and what our nature is as humans and what's wrong with the world and how God is going to right everything that is wrong and our accountability before our creator, all of that worldview confronts this gender ideology head on and, and not just there, because some of you Culture warriors might be saying, yeah, it does. It, it hits it head on. Let's do this. And creates for us wonderful opportunities for the gospel and to display the goodness of a Christian worldview and love compels us to engage this issue. We have no choice but to bring these developments, these cultural developments to the bar of God's word so that the church might fulfill her calling as a light on the hill and as salt of the earth. We simply cannot afford to remain on the cultural sidelines, hoping that these issues will simply pass us by and leave us alone so that we can pray and worship and study our Bibles in private. It just, it's just not an option. But it's just as important to remember that our engagement on this issue is for the gospel's sake. It's for the glory of God. It's for the ultimate good of our neighbor. We're not just mere cultural warriors. We don't just stand up and defend, quote, family values or, quote, traditional values because we like them better or because they make us feel a little more comfortable. We know God's word. We know God's design. We know from Scripture what God says is best for people. And we don't want our neighbor to come into harm. But we don't just engage the culture over the issue of transgenderism. If we did, then we would be to misunder if we did just engage this issue on its own sake, we would be misunderstanding the plight of sinful man, wouldn't we? Transgenderism is just a symptom. It's not the root issue. People are sinners who are separated from the life of God. We are called to give people Christ in the gospel and invite them into the goodness of a Christian worldview that says that God's creation of man and woman is good and that their creation in God's image as man or woman is good. So we speak the truth in love about this important topic while always bringing with us the gospel. If you don't bring the gospel, you're just a cultural warrior fighting, but never bringing that issue of pardon from the king and saying, you can be forgiven. You can be changed. You can be transformed. We have wisdom from God telling us how we got to this place, who we are, and you can know God. So here's the roadmap for the next couple of Sundays. So today we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we're going to see that it is our calling as Christians to develop and to be transformed in our thinking and in our Mind so that we might be able to discern in every instance, in every situation, both private and public, what pleases God. And then we're going to turn today to Romans 1, 18-32, part of which Tim has already read. And we're going to see what happens when 
unredeemed humankind exchanges the worship of God for the worship of the creature. And we're going to see how that actually, the great irony is that in exchanging God for the creature and deifying the creature, you actually end up harming the creature, particularly humans. And then next Sunday, we'll discuss the goodness of God's creation is male and, uh, and uh, uh, the creation is male and female, and then answer some practical questions as well. So let's turn over to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And you might be thinking, hey, Derek, you know, didn't you just talk about this passage when you did that whole thing on stewardship and on giving? And uh, I would say, yes, I did. But we need to start here again because I want us to look a little more deeply into Paul's statements in verse 2 about not being conformed to this world. He says, in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But just like I mentioned in our stewardship message on giving, Paul appeals to his readers, he appeals to you to undergo this transformation first, by reminding you of the mercies of God. In fact, not only reminding you, but making his appeal based on the mercies of God. See, our engagement of developing, our engagement on this issue and developing biblical convictions about the issue of transgenderism, or any issue for that matter, any issue where we're pursuing knowledge and Christian maturity and biblical conviction, it must be grounded in the gospel. So Paul appeals to them on the basis of the mercies of God. Those mercies of God have been outlined in verses in chapter 3 and following. All men and women and boys and girls are currently under God's judgment. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who does, does good. All people, whether you are professedly religious or irreligious, all people are under God's judgment for our sin against him. And, and, and the response to many, in fact, a lot who, who are just fancy themselves religious, the response is, well, I'll just obey God's word and, and get back in his right standing. Well, that's not an option, Paul says. That actually only aggravates our condemnation. The only solution is for God to send his infinite, precious son to take on the form of a Man to become a, take on the, a genuine human nature, to become a man, to walk in perfect righteousness in our place, to, to obey God in real time in our place, and then to die paying our penalty in our place. That's the, that's the only solution. And then after paying our punishment, rising again from the dead so that he can raise his people to new life, all those who believe in him. That's Romans 3, 21 through 26. So that then you can come to Romans 5 and find out that we have peace with God. Romans 1, we already saw that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. And then you get to Romans 5 and you have peace with God. What happened? Well, Romans 3, uh, 21 through 26 happened. God pours his wrath out upon his dear son. So that all those who believe in him may be forgiven. God remains just and he justifies us. Not on the basis of of any work, but wholly on the basis of Christ's work. Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, having been justified freely by God's grace, we are empowered to put sin to death. That's Romans 6. The struggle is real. That's Romans 7. But you are no longer under common condemnation. In fact, God holds on to you 
with a grip that can never be broken. That's Romans 8. And then we wait for God's fulfillment of all of his promises. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. So now, knowing all that, basing our, our engagement in laying ourselves down and presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, are, this is now based on the gospel. These are the mercies of God that we base our giving ourselves to God as a living sacrifice upon. And this point is essential because there are plenty of people, professing Christians even, perhaps some even here today, who find it intellectually stimulated to debate about these cultural issues. You just might kind of like it. You might find it stimulating to engage contemporary ideas, to challenge opposing worldviews, to prove the truths of Christianity and so on, but you're not pursuing such things on the basis of the gospel, and so your, your pursuit of spiritual maturity and transformation is therefore overbearing and overly confrontational, mean-spirited, unkind, proud, arrogant, and otherwise unchristlike. What makes our cultural engagement different as believers. It's the mercies of God. You've tasted the mercies of God. Don't be deceived. A person can find intellectual stimulation in defending a biblical sexual ethic, but not personally know Jesus Christ. That's possible. And so we start in rooting ourselves in the mercy of God. Notice what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does it look like now in the new covenant to worship God? You worship God now with all of your life. What does it look like specifically to do that? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. What does it look like to, to lay yourself down at the altar and say, burn me up, Lord, for your glory? What does that look like specifically? Specifically, it looks like not being conformed to this world. Conformed in what way? In every way. By resisting conformity to this world, you demonstrate yourself as someone who has been gripped by the power of God and of his word. But resisting Conformity to this world flows from a specific place in our personhood. It flows from the renewal of our minds. That's what he says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The world is constantly pressing upon you truth claims. Truth claims in the news. Truth claims in books. Truth claims on Netflix. Truth claims uh, on TV shows and in YouTube. Truth, truth claims even on Starbucks coffee cups, if you can believe it. And we are called to renew our minds so that we are not conformed to ways of thinking that reject or otherwise undermine Jesus Christ and his word. So do not be conformed to this world. Rather, so do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So this is, that's the negative, do not be conformed. Here's the positive, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed into godly, whole, fruitful, happy, courageous, wise men and women of God by renewing your mind. This transformation is actually a gift of God's grace. That's why it's in the passive voice. Notice how he says, but be transformed. So it's ultimately God who must give that miraculous gift of transformation. But... We participate in the process. 
How does it happen? By the renewal of your mind. God does it, but he grants the miracle of transformation through the renewal of our minds. And that's something we do have a part in. That's something we do have a part in. We diligently study God's word, filling our mind with the truth. We put ourselves under biblical teaching week in and week out. We think hard. We pray over the word of God. We pray that God would renew our minds. We pray for understanding. We seek it. We seek it diligently. So that, as we'll see in a moment, so that we can discern what is true and not true. But it's called an altar, which implies that there's going to be some suffering. If you want to think according to God's word in all of life, if you want to think about all of life and feel about all of life, according to God's word, it's going to bring about a little discomfort, but the reward far outweighs the trouble. But here's the key question in the text. What's the aim of this transformation? What's the aim of trans? Is it just to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? No, there is a deliberate and specific aim. This is what it is. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is he saying? He's saying here that the goal of transformation and mind renewal is that in every situation, what you hear, what you see, what you experience, you will be able to grow in a sense and an ability to determine the will of God in that particular situation, both privately or publicly. You'll be able to discern the, 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 the God's will in that truth claim or that ideology or that public policy. This is comprehensive. The goal of transformation and mind renewal is that we be able to discern the will of God in every situation, both public and private. Now, what will of God is he talking about? Paul's not talking about discovering God's secret will for your life. It's not what he's referring to. He tells us what he's referring to, that you may discern the will of God specifically, namely, here's what it is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You, through that mind transformation, are being transformed so that you would be able to discern what pleases the Lord. You come across a particular situation, particular truth claim, that pleases the Lord. That doesn't please the Lord. That's the goal of mind renewal. Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Christians want to speak, think, feel, and act in accordance with, God, in accordance with God's desires. Not in a few things, but in everything. And that's the call here. We lay ourselves down at the altar of God's pleasure, saying, burn me up, Lord, for your glory. We do that based on the mercies of God in the gospel. This is our spiritual worship. We do not become conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewal of our minds so that as we go through life and navigate life, we're able to discern what pleases the Lord and what doesn't. Specifically, if your mind is being renewed, you should also have a grasp on what God thinks about transgenderism, which is why we needed to spend a little time here. We need to be able to discern what pleases the Lord and doesn't please the Lord in this particular situation. And you might be thinking, you know, Derek, that sounds all well and good for the intellectual sophist intellectually sophisticated among us, but you know what? I just want to follow Jesus and love others. I just want to love others. You handle all that intellectual heavy lifting, and I'm just going to go love others. And I'd first say, well, I commend you on your desire to love others. Amen. Christians should be known by their love. 
right? That's, that's John 13, 34 and 35. We're, remembering, we're memorizing that verse at the dinner table, aren't we, love? All right, yeah, I see you're back there. We, we're memorizing that, that verse that Christians should be known by, Jesus' disciples should be known by their love. We're teaching that to our kids. But Scripture doesn't allow it just to remain there. Mere feelings of love or desires to love are not enough to really love someone. Did you know that? The world is saying that you're free to love whomever you like, whenever you like, in whatever way you like. So mere love as a feeling is not enough. The Apostle Paul's prayer to the Philippian church was that their love would grow in all knowledge and discernment. Did you know in order to truly love someone, your love has to flow from knowledge and discernment? You have to be able to discern what pleases the Lord in order to rightly love someone. So you may desire to just love people, but you need to be able to grow in your knowledge and discernment so that your love will truly benefit others. In fact, I believe that many professing evangelical Christians today, particularly those in the so-called millennial generation, are getting swept up in the cultural tide and embracing non-Christian positions and then reframing them as the Christian position because it simply feels like them feels to them like the loving thing to do. It just, it just it doesn't feel loving in our cultural moment to say that God only created two genders. That doesn't feel loving. Or that you are struggling, if you are just struggling with gender dysphoria, that you should bring your mental and emotional state into line with your biological sex rather than vice versa. Oh, it doesn't feel loving. Or that biological men shouldn't be allowed into women's bathrooms or women's sports. Or that Christ calls us to repent of our rebellion against what he has designed for us as men and women as we come to him in faith. Those positions may initially feel cold and restrictive, not warm and freeing as you're talking with someone. But why? Why don't they feel loving initially? Because our cultural air is infused with ideas that militate against these kinds of statements. These ideas like these. The God of the Bible doesn't exist. So if, if, this, is, if this is what people are believing, you can start to imagine why state, the statements I just gave would not feel loving. The God of the Bible doesn't exist, or truth and meaning are found within ourselves, or maleness and femaleness are social constructs, or the highest aim in life is to be true to oneself. If those are the planks in the framework of our culture's worldview, it just won't feel very loving to make statements that contradict popular gender ideology, will it? But as we'll discover this Sunday and next Sunday, when we cave to cultural expectations and rely on our feelings to determine what is most loving, we actually end up doing harm to our neighbor. Not good. I want us to see, brothers and sisters, that ideas have consequences. You should just memorize that phrase. Just memorize it. Ideas have consequences. Ideas, ideologies, philosophies, and opinions change things. Ideas do not remain floating in midair, do they? Ideas that are propounded in the classroom, on YouTube, in the public, in a book, in a blog post, they eventually make their way into the minds and hearts of people that changes them for good or for ill. They eventually bear fruit. 
Social policies, legislation, personal morality, political theory, cultural norms are all the fruit of ideas. Just stand back from that statement for a moment. That is staggering. Ideas have consequences. So we cannot claim to be loving our neighbor if we tolerate ideas that destroy them. Right? Let's turn now to Romans 1, 18 through 32. Romans 1, 18 through 32. This, vi this passage is vital for helping us understand where these non-Christian worldviews develop. And you might be wondering, Derek, you've used that word worldview a few times. What is a worldview? Well, here's my short, brief definition here. A worldview is the intellectual framework with which you interpret your experience. A worldview is the intellectual framework with which you interpret your experience. A worldview consists of your underlying beliefs about the existence and nature of God, the nature of humanity, the purpose of life, the existence and nature of truth, and so on. These are the features that make up your worldview. As Christians, we are be, to be about the business of cultivating and developing a distinctively Christian worldview. But in this process, we need to understand where it is that non-Christian worldviews come from. And I think this will be helpful for us. So I'm not going to read the passage that Tim just read. We're looking now at Romans 1, 18 through 23. I'm not going to go back and read that again. I just want us to see some important observations from this text and then apply it to our current situation. First, in this text, we need to see that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness from heaven against people, men, this is now referring to humanity at large. This is all humanity at large. God is re revealing his wrath from heaven. And you might be wondering, well, how is he revealing his wrath from heaven? Well, primarily in handing us over to our sinful desires. You might be thinking, wrath revealed from heaven, does that mean like fire and lightning from the sky? Well, someday, but presently, when God does judge the earth in that way, but presently it's done primarily. God is handing us over to our sinful desires, and that is how God is exercising his wrath against sinful humanity. But that's for a particular reason. This is not something where God has no reason for doing this. There's a specific reason for why God is revealing his wrath from heaven. Verse 19 this is why. For, so he had just told us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven, and this is the reason. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What is he saying? He's saying that God's wrath is revealed from heaven precisely because people know God. They can see that the one true God exists. And he goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. All people can clearly perceive that the one true God exists, that he is powerful, and yet they suppress that truth. That's back up to verse 18. They suppress that truth. It's something that they can clearly see. We can clearly see it. So in one sense, we are all theists. And in another sense, we're all atheists. In one sense, we're theists, and that deep down we do know that the one true God exists. We can see him plainly. In the other sense, we do all that we can to suppress that truth as far out of our consciousness as we possibly can. But here's what's vital. 
I want us to see that even though that is the case, even though that man in his unrighteousness, because we love unrighteousness, we're suppressing the truth of God's existence down from our, out of our consciousness as far as that we can. Nevertheless, we must still worship. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is he talking about there? Exchanging the immortal God for the worship of idols. See, we are all created in God's image. We are all created to worship so if you exchange worship for the one true God and, and leave that behind, it's not as though you stop worshiping. You have to worship. You, you must. It is part of your nature. Now you just worship something in the creation. There are, just, there are, there are only two options. You worship the creator or you worship the creation. And that's what Paul is talking about. This is the state of all unredeemed humanity. This was your situation prior to coming to Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say that all people must worship? This is what I mean. Because all people have been created in God's image to worship the living God, everyone must worship, which means everyone must put their faith, hope, reliance, and pursuit of happiness upon someone or something. You must. And you do. By default. Here's the key. If you don't put your hope, faith, reliance, independence, and pursuit of happiness upon the one true God, you will put, put it on something in the created world. There's only two options. Now, Paul emphasizes and highlights here physical idolatry. He says, exchange, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But this principle can be expanded to anything in the created order that a person might worship, including ideologies, philosophies, and worldviews. In other words, anything that a person might put their hope, faith, confidence, and pursuit of happiness upon. As one Christian writer has put it, this is great, quote, humans have a tendency to look to some power or principle or person to make sense of life and give it meaning. And that constitutes their de facto religion, whether they use theological language or not. All people are worshipers. They either worship the creator or they worship something in the creation. Now back up a couple verses though. I want us to see what the result of this false worship is. Giving up God, giving, suppressing the truth, refusing to worship God. What happens as a result of this? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor God, him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkened to what? Darkened to reality. Darkened to the way things really are. Darkened to how the world really works. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Having rejected God, the mind no longer functions the way it is made to function. It now has an inherent bent towards unbelief and unrighteousness. Here, here's, here's what Paul is saying. Having rejected God, the unredeemed person can make claims and arguments that are actually contrary to reality, yet receive immense praise from the unbelieving world as wise and scholarly. Why? Because their minds have been darkened to the way things really are. 
For example, I just want you to consider this statement about the connection between gender identity and biological sex by Dr. Deanna Adkins, professor at Duke University School of Medicine and director of the Duke Center for Child and Adolescent Gender Care. Okay, this is straight from her. Quoting her now, quote, it is counter to medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, internal reproductive organs, external genitalia, or secondary sex characteristics to override gender identity for the purposes of classifying someone as male and female. Gender identity does and should control when there is a need to classify an individual as a particular sex. Did you hear what she said? She's saying that all the various biological factors that we use to determine whether or not someone is male or female, those no longer control our judgment. What controls our judgment is the gender identity that the person subjectively has. That is one of the most astonishing statements I have ever read in my entire life. It's against medical science. That actually sounds like medical science to use chromosomes, hormones, and internal reductive organs to determine whether or not someone is male or female. It's just astonishing. What's happening here? Professing to be wise, they became fools. But these arguments and ideologies and worldviews will always be contrary to biblical truth, right? If you have a worldview that's grounded in the creature or the, the creation, it's nothing more than an ideological idol, as one person has called them. They're nothing more than philosophical or conceptual idols. These are foundational principles about God, the world, and human nature that replace the true God and His Word. And they are what unbelieving mankind place their hope, trust, and dependence upon. They are nothing less than dogma upon which people build their life, in some cases, unquestioningly. Humanism, pantheism, Hinduism, Mormonism, naturalism, materialism, transgenderism. With regard to transgenderism specifically, what is the ideological idol that people are hoping in, relying upon, and looking to for their purpose and counting on as their for their happiness? What is that, that idol that they've now grasped a hold of in this creation? Now having rejected God and his word, what is that idol that we now grasp? It is this, I am who I say I am. That's the idol. That's the lie. Ryan Anderson again, he says, quote, at the heart of the transgender moment are radical ideas about the human person, in particular that people are what they claim to be regardless of contrary evidence. I'm not who God says I am or who God created me to be. I am who I say I am. That is the underlying anthropological principle. That is the underlying structure of their worldview. That is the plank that the ideological idol that people are grasping onto. That is, as we'll see here in a moment, actually doing them harm. There's a problem here in, in what happens when you exchange the one true God for an idol whether it's a physical idol or an ideological idol. Now this idol is centered on the created realm rather than the creator, and so it doesn't square with the way reality actually is. 
And when you embrace an ideology, ideology that doesn't square with the way reality actually is, what it inevitably does is it harms the creature. There will always be a fundamental defect in the unbelieving philosophy or ideology that does not square with reality. And that idol will always, always, always have a foundational feature that doesn't adequately square with the way things really are. And so, because that's the case, it will never work for human good. It will actually work against human good. Here's what I mean. Let's look here at the rest of the passage. We're just going to go through this briefly. It says in verse 24, what, what is the response? What is, what is God doing in response to this exchanging of the immortal God for mortal man and, and birds and animals and creeping things? What, this exchange of the creator for the creature, the creator for the creation. What does God do? Therefore, God gave them up in the, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion with one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What is, what is Paul saying here? According to these statements, perverse sexuality, and he's, he's highlighting homosexuality here, dishonors the body. And it is actually the fruit of exchanging the worship of the one true God for the worship of the Creator. It is the result of receiving God and His Word and exchanging that for some ideology that is contrary to God and His Word. And what does that lead to? What does that exchange lead to? Well, it leads to a dishonoring of the body. In today's message, I entitled it The Great Exchange. And by great, I don't mean Amazing or pleasant or wonderful, I mean seismic, enormous, and significant. For human beings, the exchange of worshiping God for worshiping the created realm has had massive, earth-shattering ramifications, hasn't it? Just remarkable. But notice again that this exchange of God for the created realm actually creates destruction and turmoil and downright horror for human beings. Notice what this finally leads to. It doesn't just stop there with the dishonoring of the body. It leads to more than that. It leads to significant moral corruption and the devastation of the human creature, which is ironic, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Due to our persistent idolatry, look at what God does to us. He gives us up to a debased mind. The debased mind is no longer able to discern what pleases God. So you have a, the moral outcome that is destructive to God's creation. Interestingly, the word used here for debased is actually in the negative form of the word that's used in Romans 12.2 that says, testing you may discern. That testing you may discern in the ESV is actually, the, the trans, it's actually translating one word. And that one word is actually the negative form of that one word is here in this 
verse 28, where it says that God gave us up to a debased mind. It's kind of like in the human, uh, or in, in the uh, English language, when we put like ab in front of normal, it means not normal. That's what's happening here. In other words, Paul's point is that the, in, the un- unbelieving humankind is unable to discern God's will and discern what truly pleases the Lord, but in redemption in Christ, that's the very goal. A new transformation. God is rescuing us and redeeming us so now that we might be able to finally discern what pleases him and what is good, what is good for human, humanity. We naturally have debased minds that worship the creation. Don't read this and, and just think, oh, that's them over there. This was us prior to Christ. And Paul even warns us in chapter 2, if you're sitting on your self-righteous high horse thinking, yeah, that's really terrible. All those sinners over there, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So we are called to repent and turn from sin, but this is our state prior to Christ. But God is now doing a work in us, transforming us so that now our minds might be able to discern what truly pleases the Lord. But, the unbelieving, but unbelieving humanity has a debased mind out of which come creation-grounded worldviews, philosophies, and ideologies that result in horrific sins against the creation. That is the end result of rejecting God for the creation. In, in the, probably one of the greatest ironies of life and of history is that in turning from the creator to worship and deify the creation, you actually end up hurting, harming, and destroying the creation. In deifying humanity, in deifying your desires, in deifying you, and you are the person who says who you are, you actually end up destroying yourself. Not only by putting yourself on a path to judgment, but also in this life. See, the wrath that God is revealing from heaven is something that we are experiencing in this life. That's, what's, that's what Paul is saying here. Non-Christian worldviews inevitably lead to murder, malice, hatred of one's neighbor, injustice, ruthlessness, ruthlessness, the worst kinds of immorality and sin precisely because they remove the basis for human dignity, namely that man is created in God's image to glorify our creator, to love our neighbor as ourself according to divinely given wisdom. But this is what idolatry does. Idolatry promises salvation. It promises transcendence. It promises comfort. It promises security. But it never, ever delivers. In fact, it ends up destroying you. And God tells us this all over the Old Testament. The idol never delivers on its promise. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't save. Isaiah 45, 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God who cannot save. That's Isaiah 45, 20. Jeremiah 10, 15. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do harm. 
the ideological idol that says I can be whoever I say I am cannot deliver. It cannot ultimately satisfy. It cannot save. Transgender, transgenderism, transgender ideology will not satisfy. It will not bring the comfort, the security, and the happiness it promises. You know, it's simply heart-wrenching to read and hear the countless stories of men and women who receive either partial or full physical trans, uh, transitions who now deeply regret their decision. Have you read any of those stories? We're going to hear some of those stories next, next week. It's grievous to read of studies conducted on the long-term mental and physical health of transgen transgender transition surgery recipients to learn that among these people, there is a significant increase in acute mental illness and suicide. It's heartbreaking to read in the New York Times of a man who, in anticipation of the final step of his transgender transition surgery, says to the reporter that he knows the surgery will not make him happy. I hope, brothers and sisters, that your heart feels compassion for the unbeliever. Don't let the ridiculousness of our society and our media's infatuation with transgenderism harden you to the plight of the individual person who is really convinced he is a woman and is willing to go about self-harming lengths to match his body to his inward belief. He is snared in a deep lie. He is tethered to an idol that will not deliver on its promises. He needs Christ in the gospel and the goodness of a Christian worldview and a biblical theology of manhood and womanhood. He needs the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what he needs. That's what she needs. And as we've already, already, already noted in this message, the creator has opened a door wide open so that the worst of sinners can be forgiven. I just had the privileges of watching one of these on YouTube uh, la this last week. Just a remarkable story of a man who had been sexually abused growing up and who then eventually took on uh, the persona of a woman in, in pursuing that transgender identity, who then gets saved and is transformed. And they love Christ and they love the gospel and they're making that transition over to being um, in, into manhood and back into manhood, and it's just a remarkable, beautiful story. But this person, having come from that, now has remarkable compassion for people that are in that place presently. And he is so thankful for the gospel and so thankful that God has opened the door for even the worst of sinners. Do you know why Paul was saved, the persecutor and killer of Christians? So that no one in the world would think that they are too bad to be saved. God opens the door for people to be saved and he forgives sinners and he begins to transform us and to renew our minds so that we will now be able to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He begins to build, rebuild that once depraved mind so that it can begin to think and feel in the, the way it was made to think and feel. God restores our manhood and our womanhood in the gospel with the truth of his word. And not only that, but here's the hope of the gospel. God is also preparing for us new bodies so that we might dwell in a new earth for all eternity. 
We will still be male and female, but the inward fight against our remaining disordered and sinful desires will be finally put to an end when God brings us to our final home. Our minds and our bodies will be fully whole. What God has started in this life will be consummated in the next. No more sin. No more disordered desires. No more idols that destroy us. Only righteousness. Only holiness. Only God. Only Christ. Only the Holy Spirit. And all of your brothers and sisters with whom you will live in perfect harmony. See, that's the hope of the gospel for those who believe. And that is the hope that we are to speak to people in love. We are not mere cultural warriors who take stats and studies and logical arguments to people. I know that there's some here in this room who have friends and relatives who are currently transgender and taking stats and studies and logical arguments alone will do them little good. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ the beauty of a Christian worldview and the invitation for sinners to come and be reconciled with their creator that their mind might be transformed to discern that which is good and perfect in God's sight. That's our calling as Christians. That's the gospel we are meant to and called to preach to our neighbor. We'll look at more of this next week as we look specifically at God's design of man and women. And we'll also answer some of your practical questions that you probably have. But for now, let's close in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy, heavy message. Lots to think about, lots to wrestle with in terms of the truth of your word and the gospel and the reality that you've created us man and woman and the goodness of that, yet we live in a fallen world and people struggle with their desires. People are overcome with their sinful desires. God, we have the message of power and of hope and of change, of free forgiveness for even the worst of sinners. And we should all say that we are the worst of sinners, each of us here, because we know the depths of our wicked hearts. Yet we've been forgiven freely by Jesus Christ and all by grace. So would you work in us compassion? Would you work in us truth that we would speak the truth and love to our neighbor for their good here in this life and their ultimate good? And I ask that you do this powerful and needed work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.